Welcome to Empowered Communication. I am Meredith Hawley, a workplace conflict mediator, communication coach, and attorney. And I'm Megan Mellon, a social impact strategist focused on large-scale systems change. This podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended to substitute for legal advice or for therapy. Laws are different in every state in the United States, especially when it comes to employment law and in every country, they're also different. If you have concerns about your workplace experience, we encourage you to seek counseling, seek therapy, seek any modality that might help you and to get legal advice from an attorney in your area. This week, we are discussing imposter syndrome, a hot topic in the workplace. Is it real or is it hegemony, aka intrusive thinking? We are going to talk about that today, discuss some of our experiences, and then ask you yours. So as we get started on this topic of imposter syndrome, I think it's kind of nice to ask ourselves, what even is imposter syndrome? Meredith, do you want to take a crack at how you think of imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think that imposter syndrome, so I'm going to look at it from two different angles, but one is it's a set of beliefs that we've identified that somehow we don't belong in a space. Sometimes it's a workspace, sometimes it's a political space or like a platform space, but it's it's a set of beliefs that say we don't belong, we're sneaking in, we're not qualified enough. And and so I think that that's sort of the traditional set of what imposter syndrome is, but I also want to think about it and kind of look at it from a different angle. And that is that it's a common human experience when you're in a new space to feel fear, to understand that you don't know everything. And that's just true that you're, you're learning and that's why you're in a new space. You're challenging yourself to do something hard and looking for belonging, right? You're like, right. You're just checking out that you're like, is it safe here? Are these friends or foes? How does the social structure work? That's very normal. Right. Like I think we've talked about in the past, like your body seeks right? Even like your sympathetic system is just like looking for, is this safe? Is it not safe? And that's just a normal human experience. And there's a documented research-based trend that when women go into a space, it's common to pathologize their experience of that space. So when, if you have a man and a woman going into a new workplace, we're more likely to say that the woman's experience of fear is imposter syndrome. We're, we're saying it's like a disease. Whereas the man's experience of fear, we say, oh, you'll, you'll get over it, bro. Like, that's interesting. That's normal. You, everyone. Or like weird. What, what was your onboarding experience? Like, like, shouldn't they have greeted you properly? Like there are other ways you could triage. If someone's like, you know, I felt really weird at work today. Someone might also be like, is this the right role for you? Are you not being well supported? through the experience of getting set up for this new job that you have to do. Right. And so we do tend to say people who have characteristics that are marginalized in culture, when they experience fear in a new situation, that's imposter syndrome. They must be doing it to themselves or something. Or they have a disease, right? Like they have some kind of diagnosable experience. So I think we can say imposter syndrome is a set of beliefs that says, 
I'm not qualified enough. I don't belong. I somehow sneaked in here and people don't realize it yet. I don't, I should be gone. And we can also say, okay, that set of thinking is fairly typical for everyone in a new experience. And you're challenging yourself and you're having the normal experience of doing something hard. And where is that useful or where is it not useful? And I think a lot of times you see for some folks, they are having an intense experience of fear around learning something new and challenging themselves to something new. And then somebody comes to them and they say, oh, this is imposter syndrome. And that can feel like a relief because now you've found your group of people where you do belong. You've found out that it is common for other women to have imposter syndrome, that it's common for people of color to have imposter syndrome, for people with disabilities, for whatever these classes of people that we build and say, these people have this syndrome. And so then you kind of feel reassured, like Mm -hmm. I'm not the only one experiencing this. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, we use that pathologizing that syndrome to say, all these people are not normal in the workplace somehow. Like, gather them together as the ones with a syndrome versus just saying everybody feels fear when they do a new thing. Like Mm -hmm. that just is Mm -hmm. how that feels. This is a silly example, but it kind of makes me think of moms drinking wine. So like I'm a mom and like, I'm good with drinking wine. Like, I think it's a nice thing. Haven't really wanted to as much since COVID. That's a whole part of my life. We can talk about an episode if we ever want one exactly about that, but it's like moms drinking wine. That's a thing. And sometimes we're like, oh, you know, like moms drinking wine, you know, like there'll be an event about it or there'll be like a kitschy sign that you see on Instagram ads or something. Oh, moms drinking wine. And like, it can be fine. Actually, it can be great. It can be a way to get together. It can be an excuse. Sometimes I've had wine tastings with new moms and half the group is nursing. And so actually it's called mom's drinking wine and no one's drinking wine. So like, it's not about the wine, right? Like there are those environments where it's like, yeah, we need an excuse to get together. Yeah. Working for us. I don't think we're saying like, stop doing that. I don't think that's a problem. But that anyone who thinks they're experiencing imposter syndrome is doing something aggressive or bad or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Live your life. Like, like meet underneath the signs of your choosing. And many of us moms or not have been in those situations where it starts to actually get a little bit hollow, weird and uncomfortable where someone's like, you know, wine at 9am. Am I right? And you're like, I mean, you might be right for you. This is not right for me. We're all drinking wine together becomes like coping it can become ignoring, it can become like disempowering. And you're like, oh my God, I'm not sure I want to go here anymore. Or even just something that you don't like. I did, um, I'm involved in this project in Oregon called the Oregon Mediation Diversity Project. And I get to be the president this year. Yay. And last year we did a training, which was my favorite thing I've ever done as a lawyer. It was so fun. And it was just this amazing group of wonderful people. And one of the judges talked to us about imposter syndrome. And he, he sort of said, I'm going to terribly paraphrase it um, because he was very eloquent, obviously, when he said it, but he sort of said, do we want to be calling ourselves imposters and really embracing that as a title? Like if you're saying you're an imposter over and over again, are you telling yourself you are like a spy? And is your culture telling you that? Like to to discredit you kind of, I mean, that's kind of what it seems to speak to is like, oh, if we, if we're having, we're all having fun with the wine thing, that's okay. But then at some point, does it start to be like, oh my God, maybe I actually am an imposter or couldn't get outside of that 
because it's something about me or how I am. I think one of the things you were kind of speaking to earlier or that was like implicit is like part of it is also this idea like I we have to mask or we'll be found out, which can right. be really alienating. And and also if we internalize that, like to the point of the judge, like if we start repeating that enough and then we forget that it started out as a joke or it started out as a metaphor because it's not actually a medical diagnosis, right? This is like right. a, a kind of poetic term that people are trying to use to like find affinity and work through this. Right. But if we start to believe like, Oh my God, there are actually people who should belong here. And right. then there's me. And if I don't act like them and assimilate, I have no safety, no standing, no credibility with them. And then it starts to become, I have no credibility with me. I think that's where we need to just be like, okay, let's take a deep breath and assess. Would we like to be under the banner called team imposters or would we maybe like to go a different direction? And be under the banner of team. I did something really hard and I failed sometimes. And that's a normal part of doing something hard. Team brave entrance. That's what we're up to. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be different for different people. I think for some people, just knowing that there's a group of other people feeling fear while you're in a group of people pretending to never feel fear yeah, can be reassuring. And yeah. so it's not to criticize anybody who has really found reassurance under mm-hmm. that title, but also to question, does that continue to serve you ongoing or does it continue to say even subtly, there's something wrong with this group of people that I'm right. in and Like when this term is majority or only applied to people who are not straight, cis, white, able-bodied, mentally healthy men, then it does become something that becomes isolating and stigmatizing. Yeah. I think that this leads me to a desire to locate this in the workplace conversation we're not going after imposter syndrome. We're neutral. Like we're, we're family. It's okay. It's all good. But I think it is useful to hone in on when it goes awry. Like when we want to get over it, we're like, all right, yeah, there's something about this. I would not like to relate this way anymore. So this is kind of who we're calling to here. So if you're like, I love this. It helps me. Great. Drink your wine. I'm here for you. But like, if you're like me, I'm a wine enthusiast. So (laughs) good. And if not great, you know, but if you're like, ah, you know, actually this is getting a little happy for me. I need you to about it. I would love for us to get to be inside of Meredith's experiences around where this can show up in the workplace. So what I scribbled down as we're talking here is like, maybe what we mean by imposter syndrome or like what's actually going on there when we're using those words is an isolating experience of fear and non-belonging that may seem to require some kind of masking or self-censoring or self-diminishing in order to retain your job. Like that's kind of the thing or like in order to pass or something like that. Maybe there's code switching involved. You have, you can't be you. You got to learn to do this other thing and act like a sports bro or whatever your thing is. When does that kind of isolating experience of fear and non-belonging, where does that go against us? Where does that stop us from claiming power that we could claim to get the work done, to grow workplaces that work for everybody? I guess the way that I think about it is that um, if we are either in a space where the external punishments or the internal punishments for failure are so severe 
that we can't try new things. Mm. That's, I think, when it becomes, or try hard things or have difficult conversations or Mm -hmm. share difficult perspectives. That's, I think, when it becomes a sort of like jokey, laughy way to silence ourselves or silence Mm. other people. So for example, if you go into a workplace and you're a brand new, I mean, this is sort of me and my story. Like I was a brand new, bright-eyed, very enthusiastic, wanted to learn everything lawyer. Like I just baby lawyer could not believe that I got the opportunity that I had. And I was learning things that I couldn't even understand the concept of. Like I was in so far over my head that I didn't even know how to explain what I didn't understand. I had clients and they would ask me questions and I'd be like, well, the first thing I need to do is find out if that's actually a question or if that's not relevant to this topic. Like I didn't even know Mm -hmm. what was a question and what was not a question. I was so overwhelmed. And then I was seeing abuses happen in the workplace. And because I was so overwhelmed and already felt like in Mm. over my head in so many ways and so much fear and so little allowance for myself to fail. Mm -hmm. I also really absorbed this idea that it was me and that I was the one who was acting outside of the norm or because I saw things that other people didn't acknowledge, that was my problem, that Mm -hmm. it wasn't the work environment's problem. And Mm -hmm. honestly, one of the things that I did that was the most helpful for me that I think we've also talked about is making it acceptable to fail and Mm. intentionally deciding to fail. So this is a Ramit Sethi thing. Mm. I decided I wanted to fail five times every month and I would make Mm -hmm. a list of whether I had done it or not because that would mean that I was really embracing my experience. Mm. But failure is defined as like trying the hardest you can to get an outcome and getting a different outcome, right? Mm. Failure is not feeling fear, Failure is not like feeling discouraged. It's not feeling Mm. overwhelmed and it's not having someone else feel uncomfortable. It's trying for an outcome and Mm. getting a different outcome. So what I realized in really using that metric is that a lot of times I felt like I was failing because Mm. my boss was having uncomfortable feelings, but I actually wasn't failing. I was getting the outcomes that I needed to get and he was just having an emotional experience. Because ultimately you did choose to speak about the abuses. Yes. Even though you still were learning and like new jobs, guess what? It's at least in tech, we always say like, it takes 18 months, like before you get your whereabouts, before you understand the language, it's going to be a long time. If we're going to wait and be like, well, once we complete our 18 months of learning all the technical information, then it will get to matter when we are seeing human rights errors in our human rights law firm. Like, no, you already have lived experience about that. That's something you are an expert on is like what the impact of the environment is on your body and your ability to focus. Like you don't, that you've been training on that your whole life. So you said something early. Did you wait because you thought I'm too new? I don't know what I'm doing. At first I did. And then I started taking my own advice and documenting what was happening. And once I started documenting, I was sort of like, pardon my language, but like, holy shit, If this is my friend, I would be like, you need to do something about this. That is not okay. But then I was still very fearful. And I also was sort of learning to be strategic. And I had a lot of resistance to 
like a lot of older lawyers encouraged me to be diplomatic in the workplace. And I had a lot of resistance to that because that felt like lying or being fake to me. Mm -hmm. And so I was navigating like the sort of dissonance that I had about not saying anything versus saying something in a way that might be received and make change Mm -hmm. and how to do that. Honestly, when I was dealing with the imposter syndrome thing and the instances that I was thinking about where I was like, did I fail or did my boss just have uncomfortable feelings? Those were just in regular work product things where like a decision needed to be made and my boss wasn't ready to make the decision. And so I sort of said, we need to make this decision. And he was uncomfortable. And then I sort of was like, oh, I did something wrong, but it really wasn't. It just literally wasn't. It just was me doing my job and Mm -hmm. him having discomfort around me doing my job. But in terms of what I see with my clients a lot of times and what was true for me in terms of talking about workplace abuses, at one point I realized that the feeling of belonging is one of my favorite feelings. Just that feeling Mm -hmm. of being tucked into the place where you know you're in the right place. Mm -hmm. And ideas like concepts like imposter syndrome, I think do perpetuate the idea that there is belongers and non-belongers in a workplace. So I decided to practice a model that I was trained on early that's like the impact model, but a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And I decided to say, okay, if I want to feel belonging and I know I just deserve to feel belonging for myself as a feeling experience for myself, what is a thought I can try on and test Mm -hmm. out that might be believable that makes me feel belonging? And so I just did this in every space. We had these really intense meetings at the office that I was in. I'd be in this meeting and I'd sort of try on how could I feel belonging right now? What is a thought that might make me feel belonging right now? And in all these different spaces, I tried it on. And ultimately the thought that was the most useful for me is it's a good thing I'm here because otherwise no one else would have my perspective. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was very accessible in these Mm -hmm. spaces where this concept of I don't belong and all the umbrella of thinking that falls under imposter syndrome was coming up for me then I could say, you know, I am the only person here who's willing to talk about this and who sees this. And that is why I belong here. I think that is so powerful. Like when you have a colleague who is doing that in an environment where we do have barriers to feeling like we can be ourselves and someone is willing to speak from that base expectation and say, I know I'm the only one here who feels this way. And so that's why I think it's really important for me to say it right now. And then they say it. It is impossible that no one else in a room is actually experiencing that in some way, but it creates this license immediately for everyone else to be like, oh, what am I the only one who thinks? And they're like, oh, crap, I'm not, she's not the only one because I also think that I'm just withholding that for political and fear-based reasons right now. And, but it's already out there. And so then it really can reshape it. I think that that is so powerful. I just want to underscore You basically said belonging was what was feeling sketchy. You said like there's belongers and non-belongers. And I've heard there's a diversity educator I really love called Noah Prince, who does a lot of work with white men. He used to work for this firm called White Men as Full Diversity Partners, which is basically having white men in workplaces really get like, what is the diversity conversation? How can it be owned from inside the portion of the culture that is white men driven? Love Noah deep thinker. And he's like, yeah, a lot of these dynamics come from insider outsider power dynamics. 
And not all cultures are like, oh, the outsider is worse off. But sometimes we enter a workplace culture that has a really, really strong dignity differential between the new people and the old people. I grew up in the Midwest and like, if somebody's new to your church, yeah. either it could be very conspicuous or it could be not, or maybe they're new when you like them, but then they're like not new anymore and you don't like them. Like what happens to the new entrance and like the social yeah. standing the power, it is different based on environment. So I just love that you found yourself in an environment where you noticed that insider outsider power or dignity imbalance, like you were detecting it as I don't belong, but you also saw belongers, non-belongers. And then you said, look, belonging is important to me. How can I safeguard my experience of belonging, not pretending as though the environment was a happy, sappy one? Like, no, no, this is a weird, potentially hostile vibe right now. And I am going to look at whatever I can do to create the lived experience of belonging for me. And then any colleague who does what you do also can create a space around themselves where other people can belong. And then people kind of get to choose. They're like, oh, wow, maybe belonging, the ship hasn't sailed. Maybe we could do belonging. Maybe that feels different. Now, over time, did you stay at that firm forever? No, now you run your own firm. Yeah, I stayed for a while. And honestly, it became a place that I felt more empowered to use my voice and make the difference that I wanted to make. And yeah. I didn't leave on a bad note as far as I'm concerned. And I yeah. I felt like it was a meaningful experience for me and an experience that I'm grateful for, not just for the legal training, which I also was very grateful for, but also for that experience of just coming into the fact that I was allowed to feel belonging inside mm-hmm. of my body even in an adversarial, adverse, in some ways, not okay situation. Mm -hmm. And then you also, one of the things you gave up, I always love looking for what, what can I give up that will make this easier? Sometimes we are try, try, try and add. Yeah. It sounds like one of the things that you gave up to lighten the load is this kind of unstated job of being sure that you were not making your manager uncomfortable or like avoiding saying anything that might make your manager uncomfortable or to which your manager might respond with uncomfortable feelings. Make everything else safe so that he never experienced anything uncomfortable. Right, because we wouldn't want that. But you're like, no, like this actually is pulling against, this is not aligned with what I need in this situation, you created your own belonging. You honored yourself as somebody who could be the only one that would have that perspective. And that is important for you to say it. Um, I think that that divesting from the unstated job of keeping someone comfortable is really important. And I just wanted to draw out like being willing to say what is true, even though it might make someone uncomfortable is different from well, I'm just making people uncomfortable. Like I'm okay making people uncomfortable at work. You weren't trying to make your boss uncomfortable. You were saying what needed to be said, knowing that if discomfort emerged, that was not your intention and you weren't taking it on. Do you see what I'm asking? I feel like there's like a really slippery bit in there. I think that you're saying I wasn't being a jerk and trying to like... Have a power battle or unsettle them or not caring about their feelings as a person. How is that different? I mean, so in some ways, I don't think it necessarily is different because I think that some people are here to destabilize things and some people will be perceived as 
aggressive when they show up as their full selves. And that's not fair. And that is based in internalized whiteness a lot of times and weaponized whiteness. Like, for example, I a lot of times have Black women clients and they definitely are perceived Mm-hmm. as more aggressive than I'm perceived as doing the same thing, mm-hmm. making the same statements. And that is absolutely unfair and is not them being aggressive and it is not them doing something to other themselves. They are experiencing mm-hmm. like aggression from somebody mm-hmm. else by like the misperception of, of how they're showing up. So I do think that there is that component of it, but I also think there is a component of it kind of like when we're talking in earlier episode about boundaries mm-hmm. where um, a, a lot of people think of boundaries as the space that I control in my entire environment. And so you might fall mm-hmm. under the space I control and then I can tell you what to do and control Mm -hmm. you. And that's not what boundaries really are because it doesn't preserve your humanness. It doesn't preserve Mm -hmm. your autonomy and your ability to make decisions about yourself. If we're showing up in a space trying to make change, you know, there can be ways to communicate that work better than other ways to communicate. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I had to do honestly was learn how to listen first for the outcomes that the people around me were looking for, validate the outcomes Mm -hmm. that they were looking for and show them how being less sexist might Mm -hmm. contribute to those outcomes. Mm -hmm. Honestly, for myself, I don't like to be super qualified in how I talk about those things. If I don't literally have to be for safety. I mean, I guess Mm -hmm. sometimes you have to be a little quieter just for safety. But in that space, when I really owned that I was allowed to fail, but also that other people were allowed to be uncomfortable around me. Like if my one boss, I remember there was one day that my boss kind of made some kind of racist joke using like a, um, like a, a fake Asian type accent. And I was like, whoa, racist. Is that what we want to do here? You want to be racist right now? And he was pretty mad that I said that, but he actually was embarrassed. And he like came mm-hmm. back later and was like, thank you for calling me out about that. I see what you're saying. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like in the moment he had some feelings about it, but I don't regret saying that to him at all. Cause sometimes I think we can say something direct Mm-hmm. And I also didn't say, I hate you and I'm never talking to you again. Like, cause I didn't feel that way. I felt like I can correct this and you need to learn not yeah. to be racist. Cause that's dangerous. And I didn't feel like I needed to be like, Oh, Hey, um, excuse me. I need to maybe make a comment, you know, like very qualified, but that's me and everybody communicates mm-hmm. in yeah. their own way. And I think when we say my perspective is valid, Mm -hmm. I can show up in this space valid and I can contribute to more fairness in the space, then I think we can be effective. But I think your point was more like, for example, if I'm the person in power and I've decided, oh, I really need to belong here. Sometimes we can use our power and weaponize it against other people. Mm -hmm. And that's not what this is intended for. But also somebody with a lot of power in the workplace 
with the exception, I think, of white women. The people with a lot of power usually aren't the people who imposter syndrome is attributed to. Mm -hmm. But I do think white women fall into a space where you can be on either side and you can weaponize your whiteness while you're also feeling victimized about your imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think being aware of the power climate, the different different dynamics in the room is really important. I think what I get clear about hearing this, and I I think it's so helpful to actually hear people's stories. Let us know also after this episode, like, how do you feel the stories? I think the stories are so illuminating because we don't talk about this stuff so often. So imposter syndrome, am I pro, am I anti? I don't know which one I am. But one of the things I realized is when we say imposter, the image it actually gives me is like, ooh, if I'm actually an imposter at the grocery store, it's like I need to tiptoe. That's the essence of what I don't want for us to be trapped by in it. And I need to make sure nobody finds out who I am. Because yeah, I'm as opposed to no one can know, you yeah. know, who I really am yeah. is very different than saying, what was your new belief that you invented? It's a good I'm, thing I'm here. It's a good thing I'm here because yeah. I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one that sees it in this yeah. manner. I think that is the crossroads. That is at least one crossroads. I want everybody in this conversation to get to choose from. And it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easy or straightforward, but I just think we need more of these kinds of stories to have people say, you know what? I have found myself. I have located myself in imposter syndrome map. I am noticing myself experiencing that I need to tiptoe, but then some of the roadmap here that you have walked is like, I chose to trust myself enough to begin documenting it. Mm-hmm. That was your small safe step. Yeah. yeah. You were like, oh, can imposters trust anything? You're like, no, no, I'm going to document it. Then another trick you used is you looked at the documentation as though your friend had sent it, right? right. As though we are our best friend. And you said, Ooh, excuse me. Like we do not step over this. This is a big deal. This is impacting you. And then you looked at what was there for you in bringing that up. And it was the stuff around, is your boss going to fly out the handle? I know you've mentioned previously, there are kind of people around him that are trying to keep everybody stabilizing that one person. And so you took the risk in the end, but you didn't push yourself into just doing it spontaneously, like off the cuff or something like that. No. And so, and I did it very carefully. Available. I spoke to one safe person. Then I spoke to another person who might have been safe with the safe person involved. Mm-hmm. Then when that didn't work, I spoke to that person again who might have had influence. That still didn't work. Then mm-hmm. we went to another person who felt less safe, but who had more influence. I mean, it was a very step-by-step process of like, what is the next space that might make more of a difference to make this workplace safer. So Mm -hmm. I think that that can be available. And then sometimes it's not available if it is a physically unsafe work environment that somebody's in. I know people find reasons to stay in those and that can be super fair, but Mm -hmm. it's also fair to listen to yourself and to leave. And it doesn't mean you're the imposter. It doesn't mean that you did something wrong or that you were unusual or that your characteristic that people with dominance target is a bad characteristic. Mm Like, it doesn't mean any of those things. It just could mean that you've encountered some abusers and you need to find the healthiest way to leave. I think that there are a lot of ways in culture just to kind of like track back to how this is not an accident that this happens. I think there are a lot of ways in culture that we say people with some kind of characteristic that we've identified as a problem are the problem. And I think that like one of the ways I see commonly in law is that we say, for example, this 
woman was targeted in her workplace because of her disability, right? We say this woman was targeted because of her sex. And even that language tends to say the disability is the problem or the Mm -hmm. sex is the problem, but people are not targeted because of their characteristics. People Mm -hmm. are targeted because of an abuser's thoughts Mm -hmm. about those characteristics, because of the programming that we have to perpetuate abuse. I had a wonderful mentor coach once who we, everyone in the room would have said is it was a brilliant black woman. But one of the most wonderful things she said is she was like, I don't have anything about the color of my skin. I don't have anything about it. If people have something about it, that is something that they're bringing. And I think it's a James Baldwin who wrote, I am not your Negro. It's like, no, racism is a thing that white people invented. It has nothing to do with me. I did not make it up. So if people are targeting me because of my race, quote unquote, you're using strong scare quotes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can't see air quotes on the, on the audio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, rabbit bunny ears. It's basically like people are targeting me because because they have identified a reason to target me inside their own mindset. Yeah. I feel like there's a language shift here. That's like when we notice imposter syndrome showing up, because there's a resonance. I think there is a fork where, where do we say I am an imposter or is there a way of saying I'm feeling imposter right now? Like that we are the one that's being pushed to the margin in a situation where we are paid to be like part of the team. Interesting. Cause we were going to talk about this on a different episode, but we ended up talking about something else. But I always think about this related to the title of victim and the title of survivor. Um, so I see this a lot of times with my clients who have experienced sexual harassment. They go to their friends or or even to other attorneys and and people are like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to call you a victim. I'll call you a survivor instead. But a lot of times they come back to me and they're like, that feels just as weird to me. Like, did I survive this? Like, mm-hmm. I never thought I was going to die of it, but it's still a problem. Like, it doesn't have to be yeah. a death level event for it to be a problem that's serious and needs to be solved. Honestly, this is like the simplest thing. And so it almost is kind of silly, but I think it's because it's not person first language. Yeah. I think in this space, yeah. like, you're not an imposter, you're not a victim you're not a survivor. You are a person who encountered an adverse event. You're a person who encountered somebody else's behavior. You're in a person who maybe encountered abuse and abuse is just misuse of another person. It's abuse, like wrong use. So you're a person who encountered someone else's behavior, but you are human, right? Like you're a human who's doing a hard thing. I think that that's what it comes down to. I think it's so good. And I think it's the perfect place where we can choose if we'd like to, to back it out and find the person first language for ourselves and do the journaling exercise or just the inventorying, the documentation part that's called, oh, okay. If I'm feeling not belonging, if I'm feeling imposter syndrome, I'm resonating with imposter syndrome. I am a person who is encountering what? What am I encountering here? I want us to have that permission slip that we just are literally making up through words right now. So like, please write your own permission slips too. But like, I want us to all have that permission of like, wait, what am I encountering here to say at least to ourselves, what am I encountering? And then I have another thing that is probably a terrible idea that we should not stick with because that is, you know, it's always nicely around. <laughs> it's like when you talked about your process of then beginning to speak about it, you said, I started with one safe person, you know, went okay. And talked to another person. Okay. You know, a couple steps here and there. It wasn't all perfect. But I wrote, I scribbled down, 
from imposter to apostle, not like a Christian religion. <laughs> I had to Google it because I'm like, what is an apostle? Is this fundamentalist in a way that is not necessarily like what we are trying to like guide here? It's basically like a first successful Christian missionary in a country or to a people. So we're not, I'm not, it's not a religious Absolutely company. not. Absolutely not. <laughs> and also doctrine discovery. Like there's a lot, there's a lot on this that we are not doing. Okay. <laughs> but the process, yeah. So we're not missionizing. That's not what we're doing. So <laughs> I probably see you guys. We have to recycle this one. This is a compost bin one. But what no, I love, but do you see what I'm saying? What I love about the journey that you created is you took yourself gradually and safely out of internalized oh. self isolation. And then you started de isolating yourself, de unbelonging yourself mm. in the environment. Person one by person. person, yeah, one person at a time, and so then instead of I have to mask because if anybody sees my true self, mm-hmm. it's going to be a nightmare. No, no, you went like a person at a time. You mm-hmm. you had the internal creation of belonging, but then you brought that to those relationships to one but, person at a time. Yeah, yeah. 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 By the end, I, if your boss flies off the handle, it's still a power building and belonging building and community building and authenticity building process. So the process has empowerment in it. Even if you get to the, the boss at the end, the big Koopa, and you fail, Ramit Sethi style, you get a different outcome there. You still walk this whole path. Yeah. Um, the way that I think about that is the building allies process. So mm-hmm. when we talk about essential functions of communication, there's a boundary enforcing communication. And that is like, I do not tolerate this behavior in my presence, right? So yeah. it sort of pushes out, but ally building communication invites in, but you don't mm-hmm. want to invite in people who are in violating your boundaries, right? So I think that there's the process in communication generally when we're doing the empowered communication and we we want to identify is this a boundary enforcing moment or is mm-hmm. this an ally building moment and what is the safest mm-hmm. thing and what do I need right now so when I was talking to the one safe person I was building allies mm-hmm. in that process but they are yeah. really different forms of communication I think and I think that we're trained to use them opposite of what is effective and so I think it takes a pause I think it takes some journaling and some real like thoughtful awareness about what is the safest communication in the moment definitely I think that the ally building part of it was a huge component um, this podcast does not endorse any particular religion. <laughs> it was just a metaphor, my friends. Don't get stuck in metaphors. That's the Although metaphor. my young Christian missionary self would have definitely identified with that. A different lifetime, a different quantum state. Yes. That was the title of the podcast. Yeah, but there's a journey and there's an embracing of, yeah. there's a choice that I wish no one ever had to make. Yeah. Sometimes when we come, we arrive in an environment that seems neutral or gleeful about us learning to discredit ourselves. Yeah. I think reversing that and just saying, nope, the sovereign light in me is going to just be like, cool. So like, what's the belonging path going to look yeah. like? Even if you choose to leave, even if it's not for you, giving yourself that in your private journey even if you decide actually it's not worth it based on my colleagues, I think we want that private journey for people to be an option so that if and when people leave, we have access to the greatest extent possible to just be like, we are not going to leave with negative messages about ourselves. We decline to make this our fault, our failure in like 
you know, kind of a shamey sense of the term. Yeah. I love it. And the last thing I want to kind of leave us on or like pull out from this conversation that I thought was really powerful is you spoke about that experience that you had of failing five times a month. I think you quoted Rami Sethi saying that failure is trying the hardest you can to get an outcome and getting a different outcome. I think that permission to try the hardest you can and just the joy of that for like the eager beaver us that shows up to new places. Like, I think that is one of the things that I want for us. I think that is good for environments. It is good for people's mutual goals out in the future. If you can align those objectives, kind of how you spoke to earlier, if there is somebody out there who is listening who is like, well, but like, what should I do about the imposter syndrome thing? I would just be like, can we give you permission to try? Go fail. With yourself, go see where it's safe, create those small, sweet steps, actually just enjoy trying on the small, safe steps and know that it could build somewhere because you have so much alienated in your own office. Even in the big places, like permission to fail, permission to try, permission also that When you're doing a new thing, fear is a normal part of it. You're not having a syndrome if you're afraid when you're trying a new thing, like you're having a human experience. I've been seeing all these lately references about these different ways, not imposter syndrome, but in other ways that we pathologize the normal human experience of someone who's not in the dominant role Mm -hmm. in culture. And like Mm -hmm. one of them that I saw recently that I thought was really interesting is I think it's in the DSM now that there's like a list or it's at least being proposed to have generational slavery trauma. And the person I was watching was on TikTok was saying that like, while I think it is important to recognize generational trauma, that does tend to stigmatize the experience of Black Mm -hmm. Americans versus Mm -hmm. the experience of white Americans being an oppressor, like generational Mm -hmm. oppressor syndrome. And bold. if anybody is listening and would like to interview me for the DSM of the costs of being generational a, pressure syndrome, having yeah. oppression normalized in your yeah. family environment. I'm not like yeah. worse than that at all, but I'm just like, no, no, like, it, like it's we learn from our, from our families, from our ancestors. And then like, there was a really, everyone should watch this really great uh, commencement ceremony at Smith College this year. And the woman who gave it's name is Reshma Saujani. And she was saying that she had done all this research on imposter syndrome. And when she was doing it, a lot of the early researchers who used the syndrome were men. And she said, historically, when women break into a space, often their experience of that space is pathologized. And she said that I just, this is just a funny example. So I think it's worth mentioning, but um, in the early 20th century, when bicycles were invented in a way that women could physically use with a dress, women started using bicycles and they started going places and like going to the store on their own. And that's obviously caused great chaos in culture and male medical professionals developed a like syndrome called bicycle face, which And she like, she reads the symptoms, everybody should watch it, but um, she reads the symptoms of it. And it's like, 
uh, flushed face and disheveled hair and sweat on your brow. And it's just all the normal things that happen to everyone using a bicycle. This is not the first time that this has happened. It's right. not really an unintentional. It's at least people know what they're doing when they do. And we're this. sweating too. Yes. And we're also sweating. Yeah. And the same is true in the workplace. Like men yeah. experience fear in the workplace. And I think it doesn't benefit men to have this stigma against acknowledging that it's scary to do a new thing either. It is like, did you ever read that children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit? Yeah. It's like at the beginning, The Velveteen Rabbit's all like new in the box, mint condition with tags, beanie baby style. And then at the end, it's like, oh no, it's little stuffing is poking out right here. And they're like, yeah, because you became real. Yeah. That's what it's like to be real. Yeah. Real is not a problem. Real is where reality is. And that is where we are able to make a really grounded and like a big impact on the stuff that we are working on in the world. And I think there are a lot of subtle ways that we reinforce this pathologizing of normal experiences. And some of the subtle ways are like, if we have friends and they're having a hard time encouraging them to quit and it can be healthy to quit, but I think we really need to check in with each person and say, are you doing something hard and challenging that you want to do? I believe that you can do it. You are capable of this and you're allowed to fail Mm -hmm. instead of saying you need to quit before you fail. You need to not make waves. You need to say things and use different tone when you say this and it'll come across better. If you just are fancy enough, everyone will like you. If you wear the right clothes, if you have the right voice, like let people be who they are. And I think that we Mm -hmm. can do a lot to include different perspectives than our own. Meredith, thank you so much for this conversation. If you are also in this mix of imposter syndrome, what do we think? Or you have your own stories or experiences of imposter syndrome, we would love to hear from you. If you have a hot take or spicy meatball to offer us about the content of this conversation, we would love to hear from you because we're big fans of nuance and we love learning alongside people who are in this conversation with us. So Meredith, how can people write to us if they would like to share a story? They can go to Eris Resolution, E-R-I-S Resolution.com slash story. I love it. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you all for joining. And we will see you next time on Empowered Communication. The Empowered Communication Podcast is produced by Same Team Media. Music by Sarai Johnson.